is really good to be with all of you this morning. Uh, my name, again, is Jeremy, and it, it really is a privilege to be with you today. Um, before, before I get going, I want to talk for a second about sermons and sort of what they do, how they work, because there's a couple different things that a preacher might be trying to accomplish when they step into a pulpit. There's different things sermons can do. They might want you to, to think differently. That might be the purpose of a sermon, to get you to change a paradigm, maybe to change some of your internal dialogue, how you think about others, how you think about the world, how you think about money. They can want you to change the way you think. Um, they can also, a preacher could walk into a pulpit and want you to believe something rather than think something, want you to believe that you are a child of God, want you to believe that Jesus is Lord, want you to believe that God has a plan for your life. Um, a preacher could be trying to teach you something when they walk into a pulpit. Um, how to pray, how to worship, how to read the Bible, that's something a preacher might be up to in the pulpit. Uh, today, I'm doing something a little different than all of those. I just want you to see something. I, I have something that is in the text that I want to make sure you don't miss, even if it's just for the sake of how beautiful and compelling it is. My sermon today is trying to get you to notice, trying to get you to see. I want to share something beautiful that's happening in the Bible with you. So with that in mind, there are three different places where you could start the Bible. If you picked up your Bible and you decided, I'm going to read this book, there are three reasonable places to start. There is the most obvious, you pick it up, you open the left cover, and you hit Genesis chapter 1. That's a great place to start, right? In the beginning. That's a good place to begin. So you can start there. The, the first 11 chapters of Genesis sort of make up a prologue. They, they have stories, and they're telling stories, but what the first 11 chapters from in the beginning to chapter 11 are they're a prologue. They're setting up the cosmic stage. They're answering big cosmic questions. Questions like, why is the world the way it is? Why do people die? Why do we have to work so hard? Why is family so difficult? And what is going on with the nature of work, the nature of life, the nature of birth? So it's answering those big questions. The second place that you could start the Bible from is Genesis 12 that uh, John read so wonderfully for us when we meet Abraham, still named Abram. And this is sort of, there's this abrupt moment where the Bible goes from these cosmic points of why is the world the way it is? Why does the sun rise? Why do people die? To zoom, zooms in on a single person and we meet a dude named Abram. And this sets sort of the story of the Bible in motion. So it, Genesis 1 through 11 is a prologue Genesis 12 through the end of that book is sort of an introduction. It's introducing all the key players, and it moves them into their starting positions for the redemptive story of the Bible, which, that's the third place you could start. Exodus chapter 1 begins the redemptive story of the Bible and frames what God is going to be up to uh, in rescuing humanity for the rest of the book. So three good places to start a very big, very strange 
very beautiful book. So I want us to take some time this morning with Genesis 12, that abrupt introduction where we zoom in on a single human. And so I'm going to start reading at verse 1 and go to verse 7. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went. As the Lord had told him, he took Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. One of the reasons that I really love this passage in particular is all of the unanswered questions. The, the start is so abrupt. There was a man named Abram. We've never met him before. If you're reading the Bible from left to right for the first time, you have no idea who this man is. We go from another story ending to boom, there was a man named Abram. Who is he? We don't know. Doesn't say. He's from Haran. Where is that? Is it important? The author doesn't tell us. It says, the Lord spoke to Abram. Who? Which Lord? How? And, and the word Lord here, uh, if you look in your Bible, it's that all caps L-O-R-D with the last three layers being teeny. Uh, it's covering up the divine name Yahweh. So Yahweh spoke to Abram, but God hasn't revealed that divine name to anyone in the text yet. God won't say I am who I am until a couple chapters into Exodus. So the Lord spoke to Abram. How? We, we don't know. If I turned this story into my editor, she would tear it apart. I could never get away with this. But that's how the story starts. Abruptly, God speaks to Abram and gives him a simple instruction and a complicated promise. God tells him to go. And he does. And he takes his family, his possessions, his people, his animals, basically a small town, and goes to the lands that God will show him. And, and God makes a promise to Abram that God is going to give him, it's a threefold promise, land, posterity, and use him to bless all the families of the earth. So quickly, let's take a look at how these play out. So the promise of land, they do settle. It works, right? Uh, they do settle in the land. And though they will lose it as they are enslaved in Egypt, they are brought home. And they're brought home again after the exile in Babylon. And, and that's sort of the immediate and the progressive fulfillment of this promise. What do I mean by that? Okay. God's promises work themselves out for Abram and for us on sort of a cosmic timeline, on God's time. There's an immediate fulfillment of the promise. Abraham does move into the land. There's also a progressive fulfillment of the promise, which looks like how God continually upholds this promise to the people, that they would have a home and constantly brings them back to their home. After enslavement, after exile, God is progressively, constantly, over time, fulfilling this promise. But we are reminded in Hebrews chapter 11 
it says, all these were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, understanding that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. The, so we have immediate fulfillment, progressive fulfillment, and ultimate fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to them to give them land, to give them a home, will come in God's recreating and reconciling all of creation and humanity to God's self. Posterity, the second promise. A quick note, the name Abram means exalted father, which that's a great name if you have no kids. The exalted father of no one. God changes Abram's name from exalted father to Abraham, father of many. God helps Abram step down from that exalted position and put God first. And in that, Abram becomes the father of many. So posterity. Abraham does have children. Isaac, Ishmael are the primary focus of the story. But there are at least eight immediate kids who grow up in Abraham's Household that will grow into this massive family, the, the Hebrew people and the Jewish nations. That, that's the immediate and the progressive fulfillment. Abraham does have kids. The progressive fulfillment is they grow into this great nation. Matthew's genealogy reminds us that this promise is still active when he starts the, the beginning of his gospel with this genealogy connecting Jesus with Abraham more progressive fulfillment there. But almost immediately, we are shown that God is up to something with John the Baptist claiming that God can make children of Abraham out of the stones. Anyone can find their way into this family. And in Matthew 8, the story of Jesus healing the Roman's daughter, the Roman servant, sorry, Jesus says that, I say to you that many will come from east and west and will take their place at Abraham's table. Jesus is pointing us towards that ultimate fulfillment of the promise. Third promise, blessing. The word blessing, John, you might have noticed it felt like you were saying it a lot. Uh, the word blessing occurs five times in the first three verses of that reading alone. Abraham laid the foundation for a righteous family, a family called to be a blessing, the immediate fulfillment. Moses brought the blessing of the law, the teaching these freed slaves after the exodus how to be human again, how to live with each other and live with God. Moses brings the law and the promises of God to those people and in so echoes God's promise to Abraham when he says that you, among all the peoples of the earth, will be my chosen and a nation of priests progressive fulfillment. Ultimately, we see the blessing come to the beginning of its fulfillment with the birth of Jesus, and eventually it will reach its total perfection in the reconciliation of all things. This will be the climax of the story of the blessing of Abraham, the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment of the promise. Now, in the process of God's interacting with Abraham, and God's fulfilling these promises, five aspects of God's character are revealed, are exposed, are shown to us. The God of the Bible is a God of history. God is not far away, not isolated off in 
in the ether or in heaven or in some cosmic realm. This is a God that's interested in the human story. This is a God who steps into human history to interact with Abraham. Not a faraway God, but a near God, present in human history. The God of the Bible is a God of covenant. This God makes covenants with people like Abraham and his descendants and the rescued Hebrews. And when the people break these covenants, this God is loving and faithful and makes new covenants with them, offers them new ways back. This is a God who's looking to partner with humanity. This is a God of blessing. This God is good. This God is generous. This God is giving. This is a God of, for mercy. God isn't angry. Nowhere in this passage do we see God motivated out of anything other than love for all the families of the earth. And last, number five, this God is a God of mission. This God is active, active in the world, participating in the world. This is a God with plans and goals. This is a God on a mission. So that's, that's a look at the calling and commissioning of Abraham, but I want us to pivot and look now at the calling and commissioning of the church. Because there's this idea, there's this really unhelpful idea that sort of exists out in our culture and sometimes even hiding in the church, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different somehow. That the Yahweh God of the Hebrew Bible is not congruent with the Jesus God of the Christian New Testament. But that's that is not the case at all. I want to show you some of the beautiful continuity here. So let's jump forward quite, quite a bit in the book to the ministry of Jesus and the start of the church. One of the passages that you read last week in the service was Matthew 28, a, a passage called The Great Commission. You're probably very familiar with it. Um, I'm going to read it again for you, starting at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Another version of this story takes place in the book of Acts, where Luke adds that Jesus tells them, this is Acts 1.8, by the way, but you will receive power from the whole, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. The promises and attributes that we looked at in the Abram-Abraham story are being activated here, too. Do you see how the, the promises of Abraham are continuing to be fulfilled through his descendant Jesus here. The promise of having a home, of having a family, and of being a blessing are all wrapped up in who this Jesus is. There's a line in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's become something of a life verse for me. It says, whatever the promises of God are, they are yes and amen in Jesus. Whatever it is, that God has promised. Jesus is the highest fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is our home and has made a way for us to return, to come home to God and to have an eternal home 
with him forever. Jesus is like a father, like a brother, and like a husband to the church. And in Jesus, we have access to a new kind of family. My mind goes to, to verses like Jesus saying in Matthew 12, My brothers and sisters and mother are those who do the will of God. Or when John, in his prologue to the gospel, you know, in the beginning was the word, and the, in that section says that Jesus gives his followers the power to become children of God. Not to mention that the primary metaphor throughout the New Testament for the church, for how it should think about itself, is that of family. Jesus is our blessing, the ultimate gift of God. And in our connection to him, the power of God is unleashed in our lives. I think about the words of Ephesians 3, when the author says that Jesus can do more than we could possibly ask or imagine. What about Jesus talking about all we have to do is ask, seek, and knock to discover the goodness of God? Blessings on blessings on blessings, with knowing Jesus being the greatest and highest among them. And here, in these commissioning, in this commissioning story of the church, Jesus also reminds us of the five aspects of God that are present in him. Jesus in relation to us, the church, just as they were for Yahweh to Abraham. How so? Uh, history. Jesus is a God of history in that he has entered human history as a human to live and work and walk among us. Jesus is a God of covenant. Jesus is a God of trustworthy promises one of which here in the Great Commission is surely I am with you even to the end of the age. This Jesus is partnering with the church to change the world. This is a God looking for partners and participants. Jesus is a God of blessing. Jesus is a God of blessing, sustaining and loving and blessing the church. Jesus is a God of mercy. Think about the verses that lead up to the uh, Great Commission. In, in uh, that passage, the 11 remaining disciples meet Jesus on the mountain where he sends them to go, and they worship him, but then there's this curious line. It says, but some doubted. The disciples who have been with Jesus through all of this, the, the miracles, the teachings, the traveling, the, uh, everything they've witnessed, the crucifixion, the silence of the tomb, and the miracle of resurrection, and some of them still doubt. And Jesus is kind and merciful, not rejecting them for their doubts, just as he doesn't reject us for ours. The same as he has shown love and mercy to all the sinners that he has encountered during his ministry, and even towards those who should know better, like how Jesus puts Peter back together after Peter rejects Jesus three times in the Passion narrative. Jesus is a God of mission, a God with goals and plans, a God who is up to something in the world, a God with a mission and a God who invites us to join him on this mission. To go, therefore, into the world, to the ends of the earth, making disciples, teaching and baptizing. And all of this, all of it connects us back to the ancient promises 
to Abraham and the dream of God to bless all the families of the earth. This is the dream of God throughout the entirety of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it's a story about a God who wants to bless all the families of the world. And we are invited into that story. Not needed, but wanted, invited, called to be part of the story that God is telling about God's dream to bless and recreate the whole world. And that's part of what it means to say yes to Jesus, to follow Jesus, is to have, to discover a home with God and in the church, a family with Christ and with our faith community and purpose, calling, connectivity to this grand mission, this grand story that God is telling about blessing and recreating. And we're invited to be a part of it. Partnered with the God of history and covenant and blessing and mercy and mission. And to me, that sounds like good news. 